Welcome to another episode of Iodelli Speaks. I'm Iodelli Harrison, husband, father of two, 20-year educator, having spent time teaching and leading in public, private, and international schools. Um, this is part two of my, I guess, empathy walk or empathy journey. I'm on my morning walk again. And so in, ep- in part one of this, we talked about, we defined empathy Right, the ability to understand and share, the ability to understand and share in the feelings of another. And we introduce compassion, right? The desire to alleviate the stress, dissatisfaction, the struggle, some might say the suffering of others by promoting well-being in ourselves and in others. And so in in part one, we really talked about what it takes to, to cultivate, to hone in on gain greater access to empathy for ourselves, um, for our closely knit or close uh, people that we hold the closest, if you want to call them loved ones or friends, um, and then extending that out um, to an ever-widening community of people and sentient beings um, across this planet. And so we talked about those uh, essentially five steps to get there. And and if you haven't already, take a moment, go back and listen to it, because I think it's important because while empathy is inborn in us, it is also something we can train, we can practice, we can hone. And I talk about those tools in part one. So part two, now empathy, right? Um, The ability to understand and share in the feelings of others. And so there's two types of empathies that I think are um, important that I learned um, in my studies and my journey. Um, One is affective empathy and the other is cognitive empathy. And it comes from how empathy, I defined it earlier. Affective means it's a felt sense of understanding of another's how they're feeling. It's a felt sense. It's an, it's an innate felt sense. And so one of the examples that we're often given um, in our course when I was learning this was the idea when, you know, babies, one baby cries because there is a need. And as we covered in part one, talking about um, everybody uh, wants to be free from suffering. And an example is that when a baby cries, they're asking for something. Right. So they're in need of something. They're feeling a longing for something. Then other babies, not knowing necessarily that there's a baby next to them, they know that there's something next to them, um, will begin crying as well or yelling out. Um, it's just this innate feeling. There's a there's a felt sense that there's some urgency. And as a baby, baby doesn't really know what it is because you know, that one child who actually is yelling could be hungry, might need to be changed, you know, whatever that might be. The other baby doesn't know that, but knows that there is some longing and joins in. So there's this effective, this felt sense. And the great, the interesting part about the felt sense is we don't have to have a full understanding to have to connect to the feeling. We don't have to know who they are, what they are, what they're going through to be connected. This is how a lot of charitable charities um, raise money um, in really trying to 
I mean, and marketing is, is, is share a story to have you connect with it, right? Sometimes the connection is a felt sense, like, a, oh, if it is donating to a animal humane society, right? They want to show you pictures or if it is donating to a charity that's helping kids um, in under-resourced communities in our country, the U.S., or around the globe. They're trying to get to this feeling and have you connect to that feeling so that then you, you would want to do something, right, in terms of give to them. So there's that effective empathy. The other one is cognitive empathy. And this is a more of a, well, sorry, let me go back to uh, effective is, oh, excuse me, um, cognitive is perspective taking meaning from a thought logical from a from a thinking point of view cognitive a thinking point of view i can understand i can take someone's perspective i might not feel it but i can understand maybe through my own experience connecting with you know someone might have lost their job right and they come up and they tell you that you lost your job and and empathy is like you will think about or let's say you've never lost your job but you're thinking about what impact that might have on your life and so by thinking you're getting a sense of that understanding of that other person's feeling you might not know exactly what it feels like to have lost your job but in thought there's some perspective taken like oh man that that wouldn't Whew, yeah, I, w I wouldn't I wouldn't like that. I don't I don't wait. You know, we often say I don't wish that on nobody. Right. Um, and, you know, seeing things and and experiencing various things. And so, you know, um, those are the two types of empathy. Now, the definition that I gave of empathy was a combination of them. Right. It is understanding cognitive and sharing that effective, effective feeling sharing in another person's feelings or excuse me it's an ability to understand and share in the feelings of another right so we break that down to that affective and cognitive right and so that's two components of empathy and we use that in a variety of different ways to leverage care to leverage someone's attention, right? To garner someone's attention. Empathy is used, as I said, quite a bit in marketing, in fundraising, right? To get you to buy a product. They want you to, they, they want you to like, man, you know, one thing that, that's really brilliant, there's a lot of brilliant commercials out there, but I think, you know, Apple and their products, the way they market it is they want you to get the feeling, right? Or and understanding so it's either the joy you're seeing on the people's faces remember that uh i think it was about a decade ago they had these colorful ads where you know they had the ipod and, and, and a very colorful picture of someone doing you know a young person doing a dance move and they were all filled with like a combination of rainbow colors and then they had the white headphones right the white earbuds well before they had earbuds but ear, not, well, no they are earbuds now they have earpods right and so they had the white string from the headsets like going down and you could see that clearly in the artwork 
And what do they want you to do was get this feeling, this felt sense of what you might experience if you have these iPhone, you know, this iPod and these headphones. It's this felt sense. They wanted you to connect to it to then purchase and say, I want that, right? I want to be like Mike, right? And now that was that was some years ago. Now the look is uh, for Apple. They want you to see what you can do with it. They want you to have an understanding of what the power of having that phone in your hand can do, right? Because now many of the commercials these days are showing you like this was filmed on an iPhone. This was filmed on an iPhone from folks all over the country filming what they want. So there's basically you're allowed you're cognitively you're getting connected to that device through this commercial. Right. And you get you're getting a sense of how you might feel. Right. So they've used empathy to get you to connect to the device and say, I got to have it. Right. Because now you have that feeling that's connected. They want to motivate you to buy. Right. And so those are the things that this is that ability to understand and or share in the feelings of another is important for us. It's an important as social beings is our connection is right that understanding that ability to perspective take which sometimes can be manipulated as i said in marketing in politics it's perspective taking what do we see from many campaigns oh we understand the plight of or the struggle of black people we understand the the struggle of trans people right there's this there you know even though I've, I know what it's like to be my black self in this world. I, I am not trans. I am cisgender male. And I don't know what that life is like. But if I'm trying to gain support, show that I'm giving support, I want to demonstrate empathy by showing that cognitively I have some understanding of that group and I want to be here. And I use that to support them in, in various ways. Some people call that manipulation. Others, you know, um, depends on how you use that level of empathy, right, to connect. What is the purpose of you getting a sense or getting connected to other people? And that is really, really important for connection. It is super important for connection. Now, the thing I want to share is that there is so empathy is great. And we all need to be cultivating and training and growing it because if we're able to take the, the, the perspective of others, if we're able to feel others, what they're feeling, joy, right? Because it's not only that, it's like, you know, when someone starts laughing in a room, others start laughing, they don't even know what it is, but they, they want to join in, right? It could be joy as well in terms of being able to under, that's the reaction to either having a felt sense or being able to take it the perspective of somebody else that effective empathy or cognitive empathy now the challenge we run into as we continue to deepen or uh, dive and really connect and, and cultivate empathy for ourselves and for the others and for ever widening community of people the challenge that we face is that if we're feeling and understanding other people's feelings all the time, it can lead to a place of empathic fatigue. 
this is primarily used or spoken of in the medical field, right? Maybe it's maybe specifically being a, 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 a medical professional on the battlefield, right? And there's this, or in an emergency room. And so if I am feeling another person's pain, struggle, if I can, if I'm cognitively or perspective taking consistently, what do you think that's going to do to your level of energy? To, to, to your to yourself and your well-being if I'm constantly feeling someone else's pain it, it leads to burnout it leads to distress fatigue it leads to health problems that's in a medical professional right profession if we think about it as, as educators as we continue to grow in empathy and connect with our students and have culturally responsive teaching and use culturally responsive or culturally sustaining pedagogy and culturally re relevant practices, and we keep taking on this feeling, and it does help us understand how to reach and connect with people, but if we're doing it a lot and taking on other people's feelings, man, there's just burnout, there's stress, I'm overwhelmed. There's so much, like right now in, in, this, in the, you know, this time of COVID, right is there's, there's so much stress there's so much change that's going on and and what i hear a lot of teachers saying a lot of educators saying is and even pre-covid like why are you doing this? i do it for the kids do it for the kids because they need me i do it for the kids because they need me others who work in nonprofits and, and 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 our community servants servant leaders right i do it for them i do it for them i do it for them because they need me they need me they need me see how that can if we don't have protective measures or healthy boundaries we can be depleted in this process of trying to connect to another person so empathic fatigue is real and it's real for those who serve in high stress environments in in communities that have been historically under resourced whatever demographic you're working in schools you're working like if you're working in Atlanta public schools, you know, choose a neighborhood that you might think is under stress or duress. You're working at Grady Hospital. That's the major trauma center that's here. Right. What does that do day in and day out? If you are. As you are. Exercising effective empathy and cognitive empathy. Because we need that to understand or get a felt sense of how someone's experiencing because then that equips us to figure out potentially what solution we might make that's appropriate to the situation. Because I can't, I can't begin to try and, I guess the word is like try and support somebody. So let me say this. It is more, I can be more effective in my trying to support somebody, and, and we'll talk about in just a moment, various ways that can happen. I could try and support somebody, but the better I understand, right? The, the more knowledge that I have of the situation, the more I can get to the root, the more effective my solution or my support can be. So we have to be aware that empathy is important, but know that em empathic fatigue is real. It's real. This is why teachers are leaving the profession so quickly and why some aren't coming into the profession. This might be why, you know, uh, 
there's just a lot of struggle that 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 happens and so we have to be aware of this fatigue so this is why i developed this two-part series because people are like oh we need more empathy we need more empathy we need more empathy you need to be more uh empathetic right exercise more of this and it's like you know we talk to teachers like well you know uh school should open you know school should be doing this teachers need to be doing more principals need to be doing more a lot of people are working at their wits end and they feel they they are putting their families aside they are putting the needs of themselves aside to be there there are school leaders out there right now who i know i suppose they're not sleeping very much they're they're because they are so concerned about the people they serve about their communities and so what happens when we get into this empathic fatigue right what happens when, when we get too much and it's, and it's not to say that we should not be empathetic but this fatigue well then that affects our own health and well-being our social and emotional well-being and it enables enables us to be effective at providing the support we think we want to be able to provide or providing it well or consistently and therefore you have people that step away I think within the medical field nursing right there's a there's a shortage of nurses well imagine you know with nurses in their bedside manner and some of the most effective ones how much they give and give and give and give and feel into this and sometimes their giving becomes better and more informed the more connected they are to the customer experience so they're designing things around that. I, th I think I need to come back to that, you know, just that customer experience of, and customer meaning the, the people that we serve, whether it's students, whether it's patients, whether it's, you know, if we're a realtor selling houses or whatnot, I'm gonna come back to that. Um, not in this episode, but another episode of just that customer experience because empathy does help us design a very effective customer experience because we want empathy helps connect us to people because I have the ability to understand and share in the feelings. That's connection, that's community, that's important. But empathic fatigue is also real in what can interrupt, disrupt, dismantle, can destroy our ability to really show care in effective ways. Because just imagine, as someone, as an educator, you are investing your time, your talent, and your resources. Let's not get it twisted right now. Educators pre-COVID were spending, I think they said they're spending on average two to $3,000 a year of their own money for supplies and resources for their own classrooms. On, for those of you that don't know, in the US, the, the, the tax deduction you can make in terms of educational resources you use as a teacher was $150. $150 I can write off for my taxes, but I'm investing $3,000 that doesn't get reimbursed. Reimbursed. The time, talent, and effort that they put in, their own money that they put into their classrooms to make sure that the, they're doing their best to create the best learning environment that they know how to create. Then we walk into a building, black male educator. First thing I'm doing is I'm called over to talk to a young black boy. Hey, come, come talk to this boy. They're sending him to me because he came in on 100 this morning. For whatever reason. Many times it ain't his fault, but he came in on 100 and the result, the symptoms are he's on 100, but we don't even got to the root cause. And I gotta take care of that.
Or, you know, done my best. I worked on the weekends to create such an illustrious program unit that week. And my kids don't respond the way that I would like them to respond as an educator. I prepared as a school leader, great faculty meeting. I'm excited, I'm energetic, and something pops off between two faculty members in my building. They can't, or someone comes with some constructive feedback that feels like it's attacking. And so there's this, we're faced on our jobs with so many times where we're doing our best to meet the need, to stay connected to our community. But many a times the people that we're serving, the people that we're serving along with the community, the greater community might not see all of that effort. And if I'm really connected to that, that could send me in a tizzy. I can just get fatigued because I'm not. Also, this, this is another thing. With empathy, that feeling of understanding, when you go and do work and there's not the result that you desire that comes out, that also is exhausting and causes burnout. I've put my money in, I put my time in, I've stepped away from my family to be here, and somebody might say, quote unquote, these kids ain't doing nothing. These kids don't care about nothing. These kids' parents don't do nothing. So not getting that result also causes a greater level of empathic fatigue. I'm, I mean, I, I tried to modify this curriculum. I tried to do all these things to meet the needs of the people that I serve. Heck, I'm a principal. I told him, you know, you don't even have to come to the faculty meeting today. I'm going to send it via email. Just take the day off. Heck, I might have even sent them. I know principals who are sending their teachers like Uber Eats credits. Get yourself something. We know you've been busy. We know you've been hard. And I'm still faced. I'm still not getting the results. The teachers still might not be listening to me. My assistant principal still might not be. It's challenging. And so... While empathy helps us get connected to people because we have a felt sense of understanding, right? There's got to be a place that we move past because if we get stuck with empathy, stuck in that space and so deep, we can now be fatigued in this process and that can, that can cause us to do things or take actions or thinking that disconnects us from others or has a different impact than our intention. Our intention might be one way, but we're so exhausted, we're so burnt out emotionally, physically, spiritually, that the impact is different. That happens a lot in relationships, as we're feeling, we're getting to know, and you know, all those things. So this is why we say, part one, building, cultivating empathy, and then part two is we're going through empathy to compassion. Compassion, a desire to alleviate the dissatisfaction, the stress, the strain, the struggle. Some might say the suffering of others by promoting well-being in ourselves and others. Compassion, notice that towards the end of that, Promoting well-being in ourselves. In ourselves. Compassion begins with self-compassion. 
if I am a hot mess, a train wreck, I can't be as effective as I hope to be in the lives of somebody else, a family member, a community member, a colleague. It impacts that. So taking care of self, understanding self, expressing self-compassion, which we said in part one was the uh, enduring act of kindness towards oneself. And go back to listen to part one to to get into the, the details of that. Because what it does is it says, I have a desire to alleviate. So I need empathy to get connected, right? And then within cognitively based compassion trainer, CBCT, they call it engaged compassion. Because when we move from that felt sense, right? It gets, we understand someone's experience and we now want to do something. That is now transitioning from empathy into compassion. I have a desire to give. I have a desire to now connect and now I'm taking actionable steps. Engage compassion. So I have that desire. Now, where we still stay stuck in empathy is sometimes we don't know what to do. Or as I said before, we might not be we might not be as effective as we hope to be. And we still fall back into this place that is fatigue. So with engaged compassion, it's this idea of understanding I have a desire to do something. I'm walking on the street and I see someone who's homeless. I see a child who looks hungry, needs support. I have a desire to reach out. Now, where we exit out of that empathic fatigue is when we think about what's within our control to do. What is that alleviation we're going to do? And what I learned in this, in this work and my study and my experience is, and from the research, if we just wish someone well, because I might not be in a position to financially support someone in my family who's going through some struggles, a friend who recently got fired, or laid off, or furloughed, whatever you might say. I might not be able to do anything physical to give monetary support, but I can wish them well. I might not be in an emotional place where I can sit next to them, right? That physical response, because we often think of compassion as that physical response. And and we we go and be next to somebody, we, we write them a card, like we're trying to outwardly show we're connected and we're in their corner and we want to show support. We give financially. That is a part of it. But we're not always in a place to be able to do that. I remember some time ago, you know, um, I've had challenges with my father, my father and I's relationship um, in, in so many different ways that I don't, I don't have time to really go into that. I remember at one point I said to myself, and I actually told my brother, I said, the next time I see him or have communication with him is going to be when he's, he's passed away, when he's dead. That's where I was at because I needed to, to disconnect, to separate, to have some separation. And, and there was pain, there was hurt, there was frustration, there was irritation, like all of those words. There was joy there too, sadness. I was like, I, I, just, I, I gotta just leave him. 
right? And I was just like, I'm just not going to be able to see him. Uh, you know, I'm not going to call. I'm not going to be connected. Just the next time I, 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 the next interaction that I have with him is, or essentially with his body, is when he's passed away. Someone's called me to tell me that he's passed away and I go to his funeral. And so I, I was there for a long time. And this course that I'm talking about, cognitive-based compassion training, it, it, I started to, to recognize and as in part one, just observe these thoughts. Like these were the thoughts. They aren't me, they're my thoughts. I can separate or get some space between my thoughts and know that they're simply thoughts because we think so many different things and don't necessarily act upon them. And they're sometimes very dark and scary, but that's the nature of our minds. And so in this practice, and I talk more about that in part one, in this practice, so go back and listen to that. In this practice, what I realized, I began to get a little space. And in this learning, when I, we got to the space of compassion, you know, I was like, okay, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling, I want to be connected. I have this desire, but I'm burnt out. I'm fatigued. I don't want to do it anymore. And then they said, the simple thing is to wish someone well. Because I have a desire, because I started to learn that everything he did was because he was trying to be, do his best to, to avoid suffering, to experience happiness and gladness. Now, I don't have to accept the ways that he did that, but I can understand that that's what he was doing. And so when I got to the place of understanding, deepening my knowledge of compassion, I realized that at the moment I couldn't call. I couldn't even write. A, it was hard for me to write a car. I mean, you guys can't even, I don't even know if you can imagine this, but like for his birthday, like I would go, we've, we've since, you know, I'm 42 now. So since 18, I haven't lived in, I'm originally from Seattle, Washington. I've lived away. I've come home for, you know, at sometimes, you know, a month or so or two weeks. But as I've gotten older, I've, I just come home a lot less. So I hadn't seen him. And so buying cards was a regular thing for his birthday. I would spend 15, 20 minutes reading almost all of the Father's Day and birthday cards. Because the father's like, oh, you were an exceptional dad. You know, you're this and that. I was like, that's, that's not our experience. I'd love to send this card, but that's not true. That's not my experience. At least from my knowledge, from my place of being. And so, like, I would struggle, struggle so much just to communicate. Sending a text, like, I don't know if you've done this, but it's like, like, I rewrote a text like 10 times trying to figure it out because of our interaction, because of, like, every word meant something, and he would interpret it various ways, and all of these different things. And so, good morning. So it was a real challenge. And so when I got to this place of compassion, and it started to say, you can just wish someone well. And I just practiced that. And I was just like, really? That's, that's it? That's it? That's all? That, that is one thing we can do when we have no other space to do anything else. Because it, what it does is it gives, it softens the hardship of that connection. It kind of needs that. It just loosens it up a little bit. You know what? I wish you well. Because ultimately, at the time, that is all I could manage to do was to wish him well. And that was even a struggle because there's times I did not want to wish him well. 
but it's this constant practice of, you know, it's and what we what, what I've learned in this space is like you fake it till you make it. It's like gratitude. You fake it until you make it. Keep faking gratitude until like and you practice it enough until you get it to where it's like it goes from an understanding of thinking to a more felt sense. I can really feel gratitude to someone that I maybe for all intents and purposes doesn't deserve it. And that's how I felt. And so this 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 compassion, this just wishing someone well moved me from empathic fatigue of that relationship with my father to a place of compassion to where I don't even know how long it took I, I, I wish I had a doc I don't know how long it took me just doing that practice I wish you well when things would come up when he would come on my mind because he would come he would be on my mind like every day like even though I said I'm not gonna see him again until he's in the grave it would be on my mind every single day that I woke up and I looked at myself because there are, I, I see, I, when I look in the mirror, I see him. And I would think about him every single morning I look in that mirror, even though I said I'm not gonna be in contact with him. And so I was getting to a place of distress, fatigue, exhaustion, and knew there had to be something else. And this idea of wishing him well, just, just trying it out, that's, that's what my teacher, just try it. See if it, and commit to it see if it works and it began to soften the hardness of my connection to him and that's what the beauty of moving through empathy and i say through because we got to get to that felt sense we got to be able to perspective take my father is immigrated to this country in the 60s you know i went back in 2006 uh, to nigeria to visit my family there that I had never met only through pictures and maybe phone calls and this is when my dad and I weren't really even talking and didn't even help me out in, in, in getting there and that was his own issue but man I got to see that eight kids or more I forget forgive me for not knowing right now no electricity in the house learning more about my grandmother, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, seeing their tombs and understanding what it took for that man, that genius of a man, Bolahan Harrison, my Reverend Bolahan Harrison, my father, to make it from Lagos, Nigeria, Jones Street in Lagos, Nigeria, on a plane to Canada, from Canada down to Seattle. So it's this, I, I need to understand that connection. It is helpful to understand the connection to be able to, excuse me, to understand his experience, to, un, to know, to deepen my connection with him. But I had to, I was so connected and so feeling of that, that I was getting fatigued. And I, I, know, I know I'm not alone. I'm on my walk and there's, I'm just talking to the air. My neighbors are thinking I'm crazy. But I know who's listening. I'm not alone. And so what compassion does is give us that desire, that ability. Now, we know that that's, that's, not, that's not always enough, but it is what I could do. And the other compassion is the desire. It's that desire for the other person to be well. But remember, I want to promote well-being. But before I can do it in them, I got to do it in me and I got to have healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries set up so that I can be in that place where I can wish you well.
and then begin to think about other solutions. What can I do? Not feel hopeless because there's nothing I can do. So nowadays when I learned that, I was just like, we have that as a gift to give to anybody at any time. They don't even need to know that they're getting it. Drive by on the freeway, accident. I can't stop, I mean, I could stop, but I'm choosing not to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way, but what do I do? I take a moment to wish everybody involved well. Somebody's giving me the business on the phone. What can I do to keep myself from going out of control? I wish you well. And I might not, I wouldn't even, I don't even even say that to them, I, but, I, but I think it, I wish you well. Things in my marriage, when I'm having conversation and you know, fe feathers get ruffled a little bit because I could take that interaction and, and, and stew on it and marinate in it for so long that if I can get to this point of practice of I wish you well, it does not excuse anything and it does not fix anything like in the physical realm, but in that empathy, that emotional realm inside of me, it transitions to a less painful place and a less energy absorbing place. So one of the things that I read, I don't even know how long I've been going here. I hope this thing is still recording. Oh, it is 37 minutes. Okay, we're doing pretty good. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up shortly. So the other thing is, is that when I was studying compassion and empathy, uh, there was this research paper that studied, um, had this, uh, talked about this monk. Um, and... Um, I think I forgot his name, but I think they call him like the happiest person on earth is what he's been classified as. Um, that's what people have called him. He didn't call himself that, but that's what it is. And I forgot his name, uh, but the happiest monk on earth, the happiest person on earth. And so he is a over his life has developed. Uh, I think he's a Tibetan Buddhist monk, I believe. Um, uh, Frenchman, though. Um, and uh, the study talks about meditation and understanding where trying to figure out using MRI scans to figure out where does empathy register in our bodies, in our minds, right? Where does compassion register? Can we record it? And so in this research paper, what they did or in this research project, what they did was have this monk, the happiest man on earth who meditated, uh, yeah, exceptional meditator come in and meditate while in the MRI and they did brain scans while he was doing this and what they found is so like he took a meditation stance of empathy right uh, this this felt sense he, he tried to cultivate this greater felt sense of um, empathy and what they realized in the brain scans is that they found that the brain was electrically firing in the, I believe it's the amygdala, the pain center of the brain. The area of the brain that, that, has, that, that registers pain. And when he was sustaining this thought of a, an, an empathy-based mindfulness, this perspective taking, right, of pain, it registered as pain in his body with the electrical currents that they observed from the MRIs. But then when he switched to a compassion, 
right? And I think he was shown images and 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 was you know of 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 people who were experiencing distress or suffering, and he was just holding that for empathy. But then when he switched his meditation to focus on compassion, that desire to alleviate, I wish you well, because in that moment, he is in an MRI machine, can't touch anybody, can't do anybody, can't move to the people, might see images of people from halfway across the globe or maybe even outside in the next room, can't do anything. But what he could do was wish them well and have this compassion-based meditation practice where what the MRI, what the research found is that in his brain, when he switched to a compassion-based meditation, the MRI moved, the, the, the electrical signals stopped registering in the pain sense. It dissipated. And that's, so when we sit in this place of understanding and sharing of feelings of another, especially the painful ones, it can register, we can feel the same pain. We can feel the same struggle. We can feel the effects of that. Our brain is taking that on. That's what is leading to this empathic fatigue. This is why we get so exhausted doing the service that we have. And we keep lying to ourselves where it's like, I'm going to give and give and give and I'm going to give and I'm going to make, you know, I guarantee it is about making yourself less, but it's not about... It is, it is about understanding the feelings of others, but not destroying yourself. You gotta have healthy boundaries. But if we continue to do that without any healthy boundaries, then we could be registering the same amount of pain. Imagine that. I can just see an image, think of someone who's struggling and feel that same pain. That's how powerful our minds are. And why mind training, this practice, meditate, is so important to understand it and be able to leverage it for good, for healthiness. Take it from what we just experienced and take better control of it. And it's moving into the space of compassion where we can move through empathy, avoid empathic fatigue, and into a place where we can actually be, continue to be better servants. We can do better when we protect ourselves and move into compassion. And knowing that the minimum of what we can do to help the community that we think needs to be helped might be to wish them well. Now, some might hear this and say, that's not enough. You're right, but it's what I got to give you right now. Knowing that when I can give more, I'm gonna do more. So it's not a selfishness, it's not a laziness, it's not letting myself, it, you know, some people think it's like it's letting yourself off the hook. Well, no, 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 no. This, 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 that's not what it's about. What it's saying is I'm going to give you the best that I can because I'm working on me in that moment. And that's where we have to have healthy boundaries when we're working with other people who are giving the best that they can. And it might not be enough. It might not be warranted enough. It might not be as effective or the impact is different. We have to express compassion to them, but then also have healthy boundaries and say, like, if I'm seeing someone giving and it is not giving in the right way. If I'm seeing a community organization trying to outreach and engage a community, but it's not in the effective way, I do need to step in and say, so I can't just say, oh, well, you know, oh, okay, empathy, they're doing compassion, they're, they're, they're being compassionate. No, there, there, is, there is destruction that can come from that if it's, if it's 
if the action that we take isn't aligned with what the needs of the community really are. So we can think we're being compassionate, but we're actually not operating in compassion. We're actually operating in a very selfish place. Because we're giving people what we think they need instead of hearing from them what they actually need. So this empathy thing, it's important to have it. But it doesn't mean that all action that comes from it is compassionate. It's a great connector, a great motivator, but that move, that desire, right? Sometimes the best thing I said can be just to wish someone well. The others might be thinking about how do we more comprehensively affect change? And so many organizations that, you know, anyway, I mean, I can go into the, you know, this idea of like when compassion is destructive because we, we have to understand, is there a sense of selfishness, self-righteousness, a savior mode that happens within that? And that comes when it's not a comprehensive community connection, involvement, engagement, embracing and having, helping, getting out the way to allow them to make the best decisions for what they need. So that, that's a longer piece, and, and I got a number of stories that, that I've heard about. You know, I mean, you all know of an experience. Sometimes, let's just name the thing. Well-meaning white folks. Well-meaning black folks. Who are trying to do these things. They're trying to show empathy. They're trying to say it's compassion. But we, 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 there, there's some work we have to do to understand it, because the things we try to our intention don't always lead to the impact. So we, we have to be intelligent about how we're moving to alleviate someone else's suffering, to address problems. We have to be smarter, more intelligent, use better data, data, different types of data with different data collection methods. Anyway, let me close. So anyway, so that, that's what I wanted to say about this idea of moving into empathy through it to compassion. Because what I don't want people to do is burn out. What I don't want people to do is lose their connectedness because they're burnt out, because of the fatigue of being overly connected in that sense of overly understanding. This is what happens. Black folks in this country, we're trying to be patient. We're trying to understand, but that this, this social, uprising that's been happening for decades it's just not now it just might be more visible now than live and in living color but it's been happening for decades for over 400 years it's been happening and then we start to say well be patient show empathy well you know what i'm fatigued i'm tired i'm exhausted y'all took everything i've been patient i've been understanding i feel i understand the fact that it's hard for you to understand that you don't see me as a whole person but these healthy boundaries now that I'm erecting, I'm putting up, I can be fiercely compassionate because my action might move me to say this, I need to attack. I might need to take up arms because I, I've, I've moved past this place 
of sitting and understanding and feeling and trying to be patient, right? Everybody says, be patient, be patient, it's coming, be patient. For what? Is it here? For another person to die? Be patient, wear a suit, put on a tie, be quiet, don't do this. Those are all actions of trying to understand that white people fear me as a black man. That is empathy, right? I'm understanding where you are at. You might kill me on a jog. So what do I want to do? I want to be as loud, wear bright colors. I want to announce that I'm coming into this community. I'm doing things. I'm trying to be compassionate in my action to you because I want to alleviate your suffering because I want to stay alive. But at some point, we also have to understand that folks got to learn and people are going to defend themselves. So passion, compassion, the desire doing something is not a passive thing or a weak thing because it does move us to take action, severe action, especially in the face when we know something is destroying a part of humanity. This is why, let, let me broaden it a little bit. Greenpeace, what do they do? They go out there have these demonstrations, put blood on buildings. They're out there on sea ships, right? Trying to interrupt the, 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 the Asian whaling market or the, the, court, the international whaling market. They're trying to do all these things. They're breaking down ships. They're doing all this stuff, right? In the name of humanity, in the name of the sentient being being the whales that they're trying to save because they're almost extinct. That's, they're, they're doing their best to act in a compassionate way to save this. They don't want to hurt the other people. They don't, they don't want to hurt them, but they don't. If you're not learning that we are in pain, the, and my reasoning, my showing data, my being patient, my giving a presentation, my showing that my kids are dying, by showing that another black man was killed, another black woman was killed in her own goddamn, sorry, not to, in her own home, no matter the circumstance, I, I, patience, I got to do something because I'm feeling this so much. I'm understanding your feeling. Your feeling is that you are intimidated. You are afraid of me. You want to kill me because my mere presence, my mere presence frightens you. So now I got to take action before it's now self-preservation for humanity. Because my mere presence frightens you. That means I'm not safe. And so a compassionate action is to move to help you understand. And sometimes those actions are pretty aggressive. And some might even deem as violent. So I, I think I just took a whole derailment with that. But so compassion is not weakness. It is not submissiveness. It is not passiveness. It is fierce. It is engaged. And it is what helps to move us past this concern of feeling unheard, feeling violated, all these other things. You can be as patient as you can. And it takes a variety of different actions to do that. Somebody wishing you well, the others wishing you well. I've learned to now wish my daughter well while spanking her. Moving from a place of being angry and upset to say, I know that this is corrective behavior. You can love it or hate it, agree or not. But I've learned that because I used to spank not often, not much, but I used to spank in anger. And what I did was see it as more of corrective measures that I needed to take. 
So anyway, so I'm Ayodele. That's Ayodele Speaks. Thank you for listening to part two of our, our talk on empathy. Um, go ahead and connect, please, wherever you're seeing this. Like, share, become a follower, send it out. What are your comments? What, how are you experiencing empathy? What did you learn from this? Um, just go ahead and share that um, wherever this is. And you know what? Every week I'll be dropping a podcast every Thursday morning. Um, this is Go back. If you hadn't listened to, listen to part one. Um, I appreciate you staying connected. Um, remember, Tuesday nights, uh, weekly Twitter chat for Black Men Educators. Um, um, and stay connected with me on whatever platform that you're seeing this. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Find me. Share, share with this. This will be shared on all those platforms. Please become a listener. Let me know if you want to know more. I actually run classes and I said I teach around this topic. But there's a lot more to discuss because I want to be able to hear your thoughts and your reflections um, on these different comments. But I wish you well. Take care. Thank you so much. God bless. Welcome to another episode of Iodeli Speaks. I'm Iodeli Harrison, husband, father of two, uh, senior partner of education with Community Bill Ventures, uh, 20 plus year educator, teaching and leading in public, private, international schools. So I wanted to jump in. So, I, you know, this is the election has happened, um, the count is going, but you know what? I, I just wanted to pause and just. Is anybody else's kids acting really mischievous at home? For those who who have their children in virtual learning, please don't tell me I'm alone um, in this because, so I have a six-year-old and a 17-year-old, right? And my 17-year-old son is a senior in high school. We've been working on his college applications and financial aid. That's going well. He's independently navigating. My six-year-old, on the other hand, man, oh man. Oh, she is showing a side of herself. Uh, you know, uh, not telling the truth, um, sneaking candy, sneaking uh, cookies, uh, sneaking extra breakfast. Like, you know, like literally the other day. So my, my daughter, she's six. She, she gets up and she's learned how to make her own breakfast, right? Cereal. We have boiled egg. Like she, we've gone through and we've set up a a, uh, a menu for her to select. She's old enough to understand that and to have a carb, you know, a uh, fruit and a protein. Right. And so she goes through and has these things in the morning and then she's up early and my wife and I will get up a little bit later than that or come down for breakfast a little bit later for that. And she'll want to eat breakfast again. And we say, well, what did you have for breakfast? And she'll go through a list and she's had all the things she had, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes ago. And she's like, she wants more breakfast. And when we say no, this other day, she went while like my wife will make like grits or oatmeal or something like that. And, you know, some bacon and things for breakfast and kind of and just leave it on the stove while she goes to eat. And sometimes she'll go back upstairs and, you know, bathe or, you know, get her day started after that. Well, my daughter, this this little lovely, what I call baby girl, she went, got herself a bowl of grits or oatmeal, one of the two. I think it was grits, ate it, and then hid the bowl under some furniture. So, (laughs) 
And then when we ask, hey, who, we noticed that some, some grits were missing or, you know, there's a, a spoon, big spoon hunk out of it that we didn't have before. So we confront her, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have anything. I don't know what's, what's going on. You know, it's kids, denial. And then a few hours later, we're cleaning up and we notice the bowl under the furniture. And that, that is just one example. And it seems like for the last, gosh, seven weeks, there's been something that has been deceptive every single day. It's we're finding candy wrappers. You know, there are there's uh, things that are missing out of my wife's drawer. Like next to our bed, we have end tables and, you know, drawers. Something's missing out of that. Her computer's in a different place. Baby girl is taking the iPad and is, is uh, it, you know, and is watching, watching YouTube on breaks or is not logging back on to class. Like we've been on the same schedule since August 24th when school started. She knows the break, she understands those times and, and it's just kind of like, you know, listen, I've read all the research, not all the research, but I'm, I'm, I've been in education 20 years. While I didn't teach her grade level, I was primarily middle school and high school. Like I understand developmentally. I understand the rest, like all that stuff is like lying, deceptiveness. That's a sign of a highly intelligent child. That's great. But when it's happening in your home, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's hard not to take it personal because she, has been cultivating a cold as ice face. She's got a poker face. Nope, nope. And we go and we address this, you know, and, and then we're like, stop lying and, you know, and it's just, there's a lot happening. And so um, I've said this before um, on previous podcasts and, and other things that my wife and I do spank. Right, so we do give consequences where it's a spanking with the belt on her legs. And so for a while I was, not a while, for some days I was doing that and realized, well one, I had to start checking myself because I had to, to know the fine line between I was using, giving her a spanking for consequence to correct behavior and not because I was angry that's that's a whole or or I felt my ego was attacked because you lied to me I took it so personal so I you know so there was there were times in spanking where I was angry and I had to catch myself right and stop and walk away and realize and begin to think what is important here this correction is it's really about the correctiveness of the behavior and I am internalizing the behaviors, taking it personal. Now, I had to be aware of this and begin to check myself where, and then also I realized like, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be 100 with you guys. I mean, I don't use that language very much. My arm would get sore. Cause you know, it's like, it's like swinging a bat or throwing a football. Like when you're, when you're putting some energy into it, like it would get sore and I'm just, and, and I just, good morning. And I, and I just, just felt like it wasn't me. And I, again, I know that my daughter being six in the first grade, it's common, but I had to start looking at, but I had to correct this because I didn't want to keep thinking. It, well, one, it was time, you know, I didn't, it felt bad doing it. Two, it wasn't correcting the behavior. 
So we had to go back to the drawing board and, and really think and know that, you know, it's time out, writing in the letter, how to, you know, did a little research, saw a few videos on, on YouTube. You know, one of them was, you know, not saying, did you steal this, which is kind of a setup, right? Especially if you know your answer, did you take this? Did you do that? Trying to get them to admit it and just saying, hey, this is missing. Do you know what happened? That was one of the pieces of advice, right? And stay on that line of like, well, let's help me figure out what happened and go through this so that the child comes to a place where they're admitting what they're doing and possibly giving a reason why they're doing it because we got to get to the why, right? And, and so I would, with these incidences, like I would have walks and talks with my daughter and, and, and she would say, well, it's just like literally she would articulate this struggle, internal, mental, spiritual struggle that she was like, well, I t the good, you know, my brain is just messing with it. Like I know what's good and I choose not to do what's, what's right. And I choose the other, but it's like these two choices and, and I want to do good. And I know what's right. And we we're just like, what? She's like, it's just fighting in my brain, you know? And one, I was impressed at how well I was impressed at how well she was articulating herself in terms of navigating what's happening in her brain. But, you know, but it was, it was hard. You know, it, it was just, it's been hard. And, and, and it's been over, oh, well, I said, what, six, seven weeks, three months? This has been going on. And it doesn't seem like any correction of behavior. You know, I think we've landed on some consequences where it's time out. It's writing a letter. It's being completely upfront. You know, also giving her a chance to say that she was wrong. And one, oh, one of the pieces of advice that I saw on YouTube from like Parent Weekly or something like that, one psychologist said that when you say this is missing, right? Help me find it. Then there's this. I'm not, there's this idea of two types of consequences. Okay, so. If you tell me right now, there will be this consequence. If you don't tell me and I realize that you did do something, then there's going to be this second consequence. So now it's like they have a choice. It's, it's, it's you know, a lot of working with children I found with, with students, with, with anybody, adults, is giving choice, right? Choice with boundaries. And so there was even choice that you can give children and consequences. Right. Knowing that if you let me know that you didn't tell the truth or you were deceptive or whatnot, you'll get this consequence. If you don't let me know, if you don't come forward, there will be this consequence. So they're able to still have choice in that space. And, you know, what we're finding in doing that is, yeah, the behavior hasn't been fully corrected as we would like. I mean, we're still working on it. But she is choosing to be very upfront. So when we identify something, she is saying, this is the case, you know? And so initially, so the, the other thing that's really been interesting is that, so I told you that I spank, but then also I, I grew up with spankings. My mom and grandma and uncle, uncles and aunts and people in my community would grab whatever's closest to help correct give consequences for behavior my mom would grab a spoon a brush a belt it, it didn't matter a switch 
you know, for those of you who don't know what a switch is, it's a small, thin branch off a tree that you pull all the leaves off, and it's just this kind of thin, best way to describe it, switch. And, you know, you get a spanking with that. I got all of that. Also, I lost privileges to do things, such as, you know, going to practice if I was a part of an athletic team, uh, getting dessert, you know, taking away, having to spend time and time out. And so I know that just as an educator, it's a common practice to when students aren't following directions and aren't living up to the school culture and the values and the principles that have been set, there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences include taking things away like recess. Like some of the common things in the cafeteria is you got silent recess, right? You got to come in, you got to, or silent lunch, you got to come in, you got to eat with me. You lose your recess and you got to sit silently. Uh, others will just take away gym class, right? They'll take away these, these outlets that our kids still need physical activity, right? Or, you know, a parent, because a child has acted in some sort of way, will say, you're no longer on the football team or basketball team. And I'm beginning to learn that, yes, that is a privilege that they have. And it's important to know that that is a healthy outlet for the child and for you, the parent, the guardian, the caregiver. It, it serves both ways. Because if I give a consequence no practice, then I gotta deal with, well, one, you for that extra hour of the day. Two, you have a lot of extra energy because you didn't get exercise, right? And three, you all that energy is around me. And so what we've done in this time is, you know, really try and adopt a mindset that we're not going to take away activities. I, I, especially now that we're in, as a result of COVID, virtual learning, pretty much a stay at home alert, except for limited activity outside, meaning out in the community in terms of, you know, going to the store and things like that. But now more than ever, like it's important for her to stay engaged and keep with these athletic things. So I can't take away recess or the times we walk in the morning or the time we go out and play where I'm in the process of, of she's learning how to ride her bike and we're working on that together. She just got a brand new scooter. So my wife and I are balancing the idea of we have to give consequences, but figuring out new ways to do it that weren't the same as our parents, weren't the same way we were given consequences. Because in the midst of all of this, we signed our daughter up for gymnastics. We also signed our daughter up for basketball. Gymnastics happens once a week, basketball happens twice a week. We know that physical activity and, and limited safe interactions with children are really healthy for her. And if we gave that as a consequence, then we got to deal with all that energy, right? If I just think selfishly, then we got to deal with all that extra energy of play that's going to come out in greater mischievousness, right? Greater sometimes deception. Or if we think about it, she has a need. She has a desire to be a yearning desire to be happy, to have the things she wants, dessert when she wants, to watch TV when she wants, to go to sleep when she wants, to not take a bath. She has this desire because she's operating in her own best interest at this moment. 
which we all operate under, all of our decisions for the most part, or we all have an inborn desire to operate in our own best interest. Heck, heck, look at, you know, our current president. You know, we're operating our own best interest. What we do is we learn over time to understand what is actually in our best interest and then take practices and behaviors that will actually serve us well and be helpful to us and not harmful, right? We know not sleeping because you wanna stay up late can be harmful. So you don't stay up late, so you go to sleep. So it's, he it, it's healthy, right? It's helping you. So we learn these things. We learn to eat a balanced diet. And so, you know, also we know that, so my daughter is, she's almost up to my armpit. I'm 6'2", um, big guy, as I said before. And she is a big girl, right? She was born and ever since she's been born these six years she's in the 98th percentile for height 98th percentile for weight so we've had the conversation with the doctor about limiting sugar about increasing exercise increasing the level of water intake you know and all those other types of things um that are that are happening with that right so if we she has these times where where she is doing things that aren't conducive to us being a family in terms of being deceptive and things like that taking away physical activity is only going to harm her health further on and increase sedative lifestyle right go to your room go sit in your room right all day you don't get a chance to play you don't get a chance to dance and those types of things and so it's just been interesting navigating this season during this season um, not just of COVID, but just with a child because, well, I mean, especially because of COVID, but it's like how growing up, my understanding of consequences was limited to what I learned from my parents and they did the best that they can with what they knew. But now I understand how some of those consequences aren't the most effective way to correct behavior and also can be damaging to our children's health in a variety of different ways. So now I gotta think, well, what are some new consequences? Then we start to, I start to judge, are these consequences even strong enough, right? There, there, was, there was one time I was thinking, I was like, if, if she's not responding to spanking, do I need to spank harder? Or do I need to spank more frequently? Or do I need to give more spankings like number of times that I that I spank her in in one in one time increase that and I started thinking about all this and was like no that that's not what I do that's not that is you know spanking her more frequently or you know I was even thinking of like do I sneak up on her and spank her you know I think you know it, it, it's it's been it's been effing with my mind and trying to work with this and, and thinking like, well, it's about correcting behavior. And so is it about exacting a punishment that I think is worthy of the behavior? Or is it about exacting a consequence to correct the behavior? And that is the that is a new thing that, that I'm still trying to understand. Because it it moves from a place of me thinking about compliance. But sometimes that spanking just subverts the behavior, right? It just, it just has her become a more secretive or clever, take more clever approach and actions to meeting her needs. 
Instead of trying to figure out what needs she's trying to meet, why she's trying to meet them, and helping her navigate through those things. That's a whole different mindset shift. From compliance, you are going to follow my direction, you're going to tell the truth, you're going to do all this, to look at these surface symptoms and get to this root cause. That has been a challenge because that's new territory for me. That is me having to see my daughter who's six, me being 42, 43, 42, whatever that might be, having to see them as, see her as human, as having emotions, as having desires, right? You know, I grew up in an age where children are seen and not heard, you know? Oh, you shut up, you stand over there. And, and don't get me wrong, my, my community, my household, my parents, my mom and my dad were loving, completely nurturing, you know, um, did a lot of things for us, put us in a lot of programs, was there. I don't, I went on, was not destroyed from this, right? Went on, graduated from high school, good GPA, went on to college, graduated engineering, went to graduate school. So it's like my life was not destroyed. Like that behavior was helpful and very corrective within me. But now when you know better, you do better. I now know that there's some, there were some times of the where there, there were some root causes that, that those consequences didn't really help me navigate. And I'm not going to go back and change anything because I love the way that I grew up. I value it. I treasure it. I value my community. But now that I know better, I'm trying to do better and trying to figure out what is these consequences. And so I was thinking of this idea of, well, let's choose a consequence. Like maybe a set timeout period, right? And she'll go sit somewhere. And no matter what she does, we'll work on, we'll go through this process of unpacking why she did it you know, get to know her feelings around it. And then you sit down there and then you sit down there. It's this training. The problem is many times my ego doesn't want to be patient for the training that's necessary to get her to understand and correct behavior and actions and understand how when she makes these good positive decisions, they are healthy and helping to her and not harmful to her. She's learning things like patient. She's learning things like delayed gratification which are these life skills, human skills, that are absolutely necessary for her to be successful in this world, for her to navigate and, and grow into a whole and full person, to be able to you know, set goals and achieve them, and, 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 and develop a sense of stick and cultivate a sense of perseverance and purpose. And so, it's just been a lot to, to think about. And this is what's been happening over the past few months. And, you know, there's times my wife and I are like, I, we'll say it. I mean, you guys say, I can't stand that girl. Right? And we say it in a loving way, but it's like, when is this behavior going to be fixed? And so then, you know, what has helped is doing a little bit more research. My wife and I coming up with a plan for consequences. But then also talking to other parents. You know, I was talking to a friend and she shared a story with me about her child and they took corrective action and then literally they turned around and the daughter did it right again. 
And so, and then I was talking to, you know, another friend who's a former vice principal of an of a elementary school and said, yeah, that's common. She's super intelligent. She's navigating you. She's pushing these boundaries. But kids pushing the boundaries ain't fun. It's not fun when you got new coworkers in your building, you, you know. And so I just think about, so one of the things that my wife and I had to decide was we had to change our schedule. Right. We had to adapt. And my wife has done a lot more of adapting her schedule to making sure that we're able to have our daughter's schedule set. Right. And checking in. So we know that she's supposed to be on the computer uh, for class from nine. Then about nine twenty five after their morning meeting, they have a break. So we got to be aware that she's on a short five minute break, bathroom break. Then they go back. Then they're on another break from 10, 10 to 10, 40 then 30 minutes, like a recess. Then they have lunch and then their day is over. After lunch, what, they get an hour for lunch and then you know their day, they come back at one, their day's over about 1.30, 1.45. We have to now be present for those times and have scheduled plans. And so we have to take over and create this structure because if not, her mind is gonna wander to getting to what she wants. And so what we're realizing like a lot of this is her her reaction is well one she wants cookies who doesn't want cookies you know who <laughs> who who doesn't want cookies in the morning and to be able to eat as much as you want or gummy worms or whatever who doesn't want three bowls of cereal heck i think i almost ate three bowls of cereal last night for dinner but it's this learning this delayed gratification right and so but we're working on creating this schedule and the schedule what, what, what I'm now realizing is that with school, in-person school provides so much structure. There are adults in the building monitoring children as they move. There are, they are creating a healthy learning environment down to the classroom teacher. And, and it's a coordinated effort. The classroom teacher has a unit plan, has a master plan for the full year, has a daily lesson plan, has a starter, a middle, an end, has ways of just engaging, especially for the young folks, to keep them moving. I think they say the attention span for for someone who's in K-5 or maybe like K-2 is maybe four or five minutes, you know, maybe seven at, at tops, and they're moving on from activity to activity to keep that mind learning, to keep that mind in training. And so if we don't, if I don't, my wife and I don't keep that mind in in constant training and constant direction and constantly involved. Now, there's not to say that like I'm going to overschedule her in that way, but it's more of like knowing that there is something else to be done. And sometimes being done is taking a nap. Sometimes being, you know, something else to be done is to sit and read a book for 20 minutes or 15 minutes or to sit on your bed just quietly in quiet meditation or thinking time, you know? So it's not always like go, 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 go. But school provides that. And so I just wonder, you know, how are you all doing? How are you all experiencing this time with your kids? I've, I read online that, you know, one one parent, because we, we talk about, I read on one on, online that like one, one of the teachers that I kind of follow on Facebook or whatever, said that, you know, she's teaching first or kindergarten, first, fourth, sixth, seventh, and 10th grade, right? And she's a teacher because those are her kids because her kids are at home. And we talk about this 
challenge it is to, to get them learning. I just wonder about how others are doing, how, like what behaviors and actions are manifesting. I want to be clear that when I talk to my daughter and I say that I just, I'm very clear to separate her actions and her behavior from her, right? To where I say, I do not appreciate your actions or your behavior, right? Because I don't want it to feel like it's, it's not her, it's the behavior that I don't like. It's not, I don't the dislike her as a person. I dislike what she's doing because of X, Y, Z. And we talk about how some of her decisions are counter to the family culture that we've created. And we talk about those very openly. And so I just wonder just how that's affecting you all, other people's households. Even if you're not a teacher, if you're just a, you know, if, if you have kids, and you're working. It's just so hard. And during this time with kids, you know, some kids, you know, being completely virtual, you know, even those who seem like they're navigating this well, we got to check in on them. We got to check in on them because there, there's this, this structure that going to school created. And we talk about, you know, safety and how some of the, you know, home, you know, uh, school definitely is is for many folks is not perfect especially if you're black brown and or poor you're you're more likely to go to schools that um are struggling from structural and institutional racism that has severely crippled communities and community community resources and access that then has manifested themselves and come to life in our buildings with our interactions with one another, parents, students, teachers, who actually decides to want to go and work in certain communities for schooling. And so I just, you know, I wonder what effect that this is, gonna, this is having, right? And I know that there are so many positive interactions that are happening with teachers who are, who are logging in and having these virtual experience with kids, but it's still not everything. It's still missing. It was still lagging when we had in-person education and now, what's happening now and so you know this is just just my reflection just you know that's why I call Ayadeli Speaks is these are the things that that I'm I'm working on as a parent as a parent who's an educator who's supposed to know how to do this right you know in theory I put it in quotation supposed to know how to do this right I'm still struggling to figure this out and it's challenging even when you know they're supposed to do it when you know that and it attacks our ego and so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a daily walk and journey as a parent to, to think about, to, to weigh what I think parenting should, should, what I've been taught it is, what I think it, <coughs> excuse me, what it should be, and then what it is in, in this moment. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot to be thinking about because it's, as a parent, I think about it every, every day. Am I doing this right? Am I making the right decisions? What is causing me to... What is driving my decision-making? Is it fear? Sometimes. Is it an insult to ego? Sometimes. Is it my own satisfaction sometimes? But it's like as a, as a parent, it's, I'm constantly operating in a space where 
I'm working on myself. You know, it's... Sorry, I got all these trucks and buses. It's, you know, it's, it's school pickup time uh, as I walk through my neighborhood. People walking dogs and all the other type of stuff. And so, you know, there's this, it's this constant reflection. I'm an opportunity to reflect on who I am as a person. I didn't realize that parenting would be that way, right? And, and I now understand why, like, and I've heard this as a teacher, right? That our, our parents are sending our ki- are the, sending the best they got. They're sending the best that they can do, you know, in their children to our classrooms. And anytime we have correspondence with them and give them, you know, information, anytime our children are a reflection of our parenting, and it's hard or challenging like so so then our parenting when we send our kids to school it's completely open it's completely exposed we're vulnerable and so when we get feedback from our teachers from the educators the folks that are that are that are creating the nurturing learning environments for our children we almost take it as an we could take it on as an attack of ourselves because if anybody's anything like me, I really, I'm thinking of how just my interaction with my own daughter, just me one-on-one with her or within our household is a reflection of me. What is it saying about me? You know, now my child goes into a school and does something. What does that say about me? What does that say about our household, right? What image do I want to portray out there? You know, there's, there's this battle of like how we want to be perceived. And this is why, like, I take to, you know, this platform to just share. I ain't got all this shit figured out. But I'm in the process of trying to work on it. And not just standing in the space of, like, it's going to be my way or the highway. Which, you know, works for some people. That's where they're at in their lives. But for me, again, that, that phrase, when you know better, you do better. I'm trying to do better. And so it's just, it's just so interesting. You know, just to sit here and reflect and, and to, to try and negotiate what I think parenting is and then what I want that experience to be like for me now. And balancing that against all the research that I've read, you know, all the experiences that I've had over my 20 years working with parents. So, you know, it's just interesting. So we're, we're navigating. The Harrisons are navigating learning at home. We're navigating consequence. We're navigating growing our children. We're navigating being with our children 24 hours a day. Which, if we think about it, the only time I, for most people that they're able to be with their children 24 hours a day is when the children are infants from birth to you know however long they are to get separated. That's the only time. And those are usually the times when our children can't run. You know, they can't say anything. We get complete control in those moments. You know, the baby needs to be changed. The baby needs to be fed. The baby cries. But ultimately, when I got to go do something, I can pack up the baby and go. If I want to watch TV, I can watch whatever I want, what time I want, because the baby doesn't know what I'm watching. I can eat what I want. I can dress the way I want. I can smell the way I want. I don't have to. I'm in complete control. But now we're in a space where we're with our children 24-7. That just, that's unprecedented. It's unprecedented. I'm going to use that word. Unprecedented, this COVID-19 and what it's causing us. 
And so, you know, I just want to know, like, hey, excuse me, want you all to know that, you know, I'm here just trying to figure it out, uh, doing the best that I can, use the knowledge that I can, staying prayerful, you know, and knowing that I'm not in in 100% control here. But I am in control on how I respond to the behavior of my children. I'm working on it. I'm working on it quite a bit. So thank you for taking a, a listen to another episode of Ayodele Speaks. I'm Ayodele Harrison. Um, if you haven't yet, man, hit the subscribe button, hit the favorite button. Please comment where you see this. Um, share this. I want to know your thoughts about how it's going for you with navigating children in your home and consequences and have behavior has changed. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Iodelli underscore H-A-R 78. Um, and just connect me on YouTube and other places that I'm there. Find me. Let's look out. Let's connect. I want to know about how your experiences are as an educator, as a parent, as a black male. Holla at me. All right. Until our next episode. Take care. Welcome to another episode of Iodelli Speaks. I'm Iodelli Harrison, husband, father of two, uh, senior partner of education with Community Bill Ventures, uh, 20 plus year educator, teaching and leading in public, private, international schools. So I wanted to jump in. So, I, you know, this is the election has happened. Um, the count is going. But you know what? I, I just want to pause and just. Is anybody else's kids acting really mischievous at home? For those who who have their children in virtual learning, please don't tell me I'm alone um, in this because, so I have a six-year-old and a 17-year-old, right? And my 17-year-old son is a senior in high school. We've been working on his college applications and financial aid. That's going well. He's independently navigating. My six-year-old, on the other hand, man, oh man. Oh, she is showing a side of herself. Uh, you know, uh, not telling the truth, um, sneaking candy, sneaking uh, cookies, uh, sneaking extra breakfast. Like, you know, like literally the other day. So my, my daughter, she's six. She, she gets up and she's learned how to make her own breakfast, right? Cereal. We have boiled egg. Like she, we've gone through and we've set up a a uh, a menu for her to select. She's old enough to understand that and to have a carb, you know, a uh, fruit and a protein, right? And so she goes through and has these things in the morning and then she's up early and my wife and I will get up a little bit later than that or come down for breakfast a little bit later for that. And she'll want to eat breakfast again. And we say, well, what did you have for breakfast? And she'll go through a list and she's had all the things she had, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes ago. And she's like, she wants more breakfast. And when we say no, this other day, she went while like my wife will make like grits or oatmeal or something like that. And, you know, some bacon and things for breakfast and kind of and just leave it on the stove while she goes to eat. And sometimes she'll go back upstairs and, you know, bathe or, you know, get her day started after that. Well, my daughter, this this little lovely, what I call baby girl, she went, got herself a bowl of grits or oatmeal, one of the two. I think it was grits, ate it, and then hid the bowl under some furniture. So, <laughs> and then when we asked, hey, who, we noticed that some, some grits were missing or, you know, there's a, a spoon, big spoon hunk out of it that we didn't had before so we confront her oh, I, I didn't I didn't have anything I don't know what's what's going on you know it's kids denial 
And then a few hours later, we're cleaning up and we notice the bowl under the furniture. And that, that is just one example. And it seems like for the last, gosh, seven weeks, there's been something that has been deceptive every single day. It's we're finding candy wrappers. You know, there are there's uh, things that are missing out of my wife's drawer. Like next to our bed, we have end tables and, you know, drawers. Something's missing out of that. Her computer's in a different place. Baby girl is taking the iPad and is, is uh, it, you know, and is watching, watching YouTube on breaks or is not logging back on to class. Like we've been on the same schedule since August 24th when school started. She knows the break. She understands those times. And, and it's just kind of like, you know, listen, I've read all the research, not all the research, but I'm, I'm, I've been in education 20 years. While I didn't teach her grade level, I was primarily middle school and high school. Like I understand developmentally. I understand the rest, like all that stuff is like lying, deceptiveness. That's a sign of a highly intelligent child. That's great. But when it's happening in your home, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's hard not to take it personal because she has been cultivating a cold as ice face. She's got a poker face. Nope, nope. And we go and we address this, you know, and, and then we're like, stop lying. And you know, and it's just, there's a lot happening. And so um, I've said this before um, on previous podcasts and, and other things that my wife and I do spank. Right. So we do give consequences where it's a spanking with the belt on her legs. And so for a while, I was not a while for some days I was doing that and realized, well, one, I had to start checking myself because I had to, to know the fine line between I was using giving her a spanking for consequence to correct behavior and not because I was angry that's that's a whole or or I felt my ego was attacked because you lied to me I took it so personal so I you know so there was there were times in spanking where I was angry and I had to catch myself right and stop and walk away and realize and begin to think what is important here this correction is it's really about the correctiveness of the behavior and I am internalizing the behaviors, taking it personal. Now, I had to be aware of this and begin to check myself where, and then also realize like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be 100 with you guys. I mean, I don't use that language very much. My arm would get sore. Cause you know, it's like, it's like swinging a bat or throwing a football. Like when you're, when you're putting some energy into it, like it would get sore and I'm just, and, and I just, good morning. And I, and I just, just felt like it wasn't me. And I, again, I know that my daughter being six in the first grade, it's common, but I had to start looking at, but I had to correct this cause I didn't want to keep thinking. It, well, one, it was time, you know, I didn't, it felt bad doing it Two, It wasn't correcting the behavior. So we had to go back to the drawing board and, and really think and know that you know, it's time out, writing in a letter, how to, you know, did a little research, saw a few videos on, on YouTube. You know, one of them was, 
you know, not saying, did you steal this, which is kind of a setup, right? Especially if you know your answer. Did you take this? Did you do that? Trying to get them to admit it and just saying, hey, this is missing. Do you know what happened? That was one of the pieces of advice, right? And stay on that line of like, well, let's help me figure out what happened and go through this so that the child comes to a place where they're admitting what they're doing and possibly given a reason why they're doing it because we got to get to the why right and and so I would with these incidences like I would have walks and talks with my daughter and, and she would say well it's just like literally she would articulate this struggle internal mental spiritual struggle and she was like well I t- the good you know, my brain is just messing with it. Like I know what's good and I choose not to do what's, what's right. And I choose the other, but it's like these two choices and, and I want to do good. And I know what's right. And we're just like, what? She's like, it's just fighting in my brain, you know? And one, I was impressed at how well I was impressed at how well she was articulating herself in terms of navigating what's happening in her brain but you know but it was, it was hard you know it, it was just, it's been hard and 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 it's been over oh well I said what six seven weeks three months this has been going on and it doesn't seem like any correction of behavior you know I think we've landed on some consequences where it's time out it's writing a letter it's being completely up front you know also giving her a chance to say that she was wrong. And one, oh, one of the pieces of advice that I saw on YouTube from like Parent Weekly or something like that, one psychologist said that when you say this is missing, right, help me find it, then there's this, I'm not, there's this ideal of two types of consequences. Okay, so if you tell me right now, there will be this consequence. If you don't tell me and I realize that you did do something, then there's going to be this second consequence. So now it's like they have a choice. It's, 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 you know, a lot of working with children I found with, with students, with, with anybody, adults is giving choice, right? Choice with boundaries. And so there was even choice that you can give children and consequences, right? Knowing that if you let me know that you didn't tell the truth or you were deceptive or whatnot, you'll get this consequence. If you don't let me know, if you don't come forward, there will be this consequence. So they're able to still have choice in that space. And, you know, what we're finding in doing that is, yeah, the behavior hasn't been fully corrected as we would like. I mean, we're still working on it. But she is choosing to be very upfront. So when we identify something, she is saying, this is the case, you know? And so initially, so the, the other thing that's really been interesting is that, so I told you that I spank, but then also I, I grew up with spankings. My mom and grandma and uncle, uncles and aunts and people in my community would grab whatever's closest to help correct, give consequences for behavior. My mom would grab a spoon, a brush, a belt. It, it didn't matter, a switch. You know, for those of you who don't know what a switch is, it's a small, thin branch off a tree that you pull all the leaves off, and it's just this kind of thin, best way to describe it, switch. And, you know, you get a spanking with that. I got all of that. Also, 
I lost privileges to do things such as, you know, going to practice if I was a part of an athletic team, uh, getting dessert, you know, taking away, having to spend time and time out. And so I know that just as an educator, it's a common practice to when students aren't following directions and aren't living up to the school culture and the values and the principles that have been set, there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences include taking things away like recess. Like some of the common things in the cafeteria is you got silent recess, right? You got to come in, you got to, or silent lunch, you got to come in, you got to eat with me. You lose your recess and you got to sit silently. Uh, others will just take away gym class, right? They'll take away these, these outlets that our kids still need physical activity, right? Or, you know, a parent, because a child has acted in some sort of way, will say, you're no longer on the football team or basketball team. And I'm beginning to learn that, yes, that is a privilege that they have. And it's important to know that that is a healthy outlet for the child and for you, the parent, the guardian, the caregiver. It, it serves both ways. Because if I give a consequence is no practice, then I gotta deal with, well, one, you for that extra hour of the day. Two, you have a lot of extra energy because you didn't get exercise, right? And three, you all that energy is around me. And so what we've done in this time is, you know, really try and adopt a mindset that we're not going to take away activities. I, I, especially now that we're in, as a result of COVID, virtual learning, pretty much a stay at home alert, except for limited activity outside, meaning out in the community in terms of, you know, going to the store and things like that. But now more than ever, like it's important for her to stay engaged and keep with these athletic things. So I can't take away recess or the times we walk in the morning or the time we go out and play where I'm in the process of, of she's learning how to ride her bike and we're working on that together. She's just got a brand new scooter. So my wife and I are balancing the idea of we have to give consequences, but figuring out new ways to do it that weren't the same as our parents, weren't the same way we were given consequences. Because in the midst of all of this, we signed our daughter up for gymnastics. We also signed our daughter up for basketball. Gymnastics happens once a week, basketball happens twice a week. We know that physical activity and, and limited safe interactions with children are really healthy for her. And if we gave that as a consequence, then we got to deal with all that energy, right? If I just think selfishly, then we got to deal with all that extra energy of play that's going to come out in greater mischievousness, right? Greater sometimes deception. Or if we think about it, she has a need. She has a desire to be a yearning desire to be happy, to have the things she wants, dessert when she wants, to watch TV when she wants, to go to sleep when she wants, to not take a bath. She has this desire because she's operating in her own best interest at this moment, which we all operate under all of our decisions for the most part, or we all have an inborn desire to operate in our own best interest. Hey, heck, look at, you know, our current president. 
you know, we're operating our own best interest. What we do is we learn over time to understand what is actually in our best interest and then take practices and behaviors that will actually serve us well and be helpful to us and not harmful, right? We know not sleeping because you want to stay up late can be harmful. So you don't stay up late, so you go to sleep. So it's, he it, it's healthy, right? It's helping you. So we learn these things. We learn to eat a balanced diet. And so, you know, also we know that. So my daughter is, she's almost up to my armpit. I'm 6'2", um, big guy, as I said before. And she is a big girl, right? She was born and ever since she's been born these six years she's in the 98th percentile for height 98th percentile for weight so we've had the conversation with the doctor about limiting sugar about increasing exercise increasing the level of water intake you know and all those other types of things um that are that are happening with that right so if we she has these times where where she is doing things that aren't conducive to us being a family in terms of being deceptive and things like that taking away physical activity is only going to harm her health further on and increase sedative lifestyle right go to your room go sit in your room right all day don't get a chance to play don't get a chance to dance and those types of things and so it's just been interesting navigating this season during this season um, not just of COVID, but just with a child because, well, I mean, especially because of COVID, but it's like how growing up, my understanding of consequences was limited to what I learned from my parents and they did the best that they can with what they knew. But now I understand how some of those consequences aren't the most effective way to correct behavior and also can be damaging to our children's health in a variety of different ways. So now I got to think, well, what are some new consequences? Then we start to, I start to judge, are these consequences even strong enough? Right? There, there, was, there was one time I was thinking, I was like, if, if she's not responding to spanking, do I need to spank harder? Or do I need to spank more frequently? Or do I need to give more spankings, like number of times that I, that I spank her in, in, one, in one time, increase that? And I started thinking about all this and was like, no, that, that's not what I do. That's not, that is, you know, spanking her more frequently or, you know, I was even thinking of like, do I sneak up on her and spank her? You know, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's been it's been effing with my mind in trying to work with this and, and thinking like, well, it's about correcting behavior. And so is it about exacting a punishment that I think is worthy of the behavior or is it about exacting a consequence to correct the behavior? And that is the that is a new thing that that I'm still trying to understand. Because it it moves from a place of me thinking about compliance but sometimes that spanking just subverts the behavior right it just it just has her become a more secretive or clever take more clever approach and actions to meeting her needs instead of trying to figure out what needs she's trying to meet, why she's trying to meet them, and helping her navigate through those things. That's a whole different mindset shift from compliance. You are going to follow my direction. You're going to tell the truth. You're going to do all this 
to look at these surface symptoms and get to this root cause. That has been a challenge because that's new territory for me. That is me having to see my daughter who's six, me being 42, 43, 42, whatever that might be, having to see them as, see her as human, as having emotions, as having desires, right? You know, I grew up in an age where children are seen and not heard, you know? Oh, you shut up, you stand over there. And, and don't get me wrong, my, my community, my household, my parents, my mom and my dad were loving, completely nurturing, you know, um, did a lot of things for us, put us in a lot of programs, was there. I don't, I went on, was not destroyed from this, right? Went on, graduated from high school, good GPA, went on to college, graduated engineering, went to graduate school. So it's like my life was not destroyed. Like that behavior was helpful and very corrective within me. But now when you know better, you do better. I now know that there's some, there were some times of the where there, there were some root causes that, that those consequences didn't really help me navigate. And I'm not going to go back and change anything because I love the way that I grew up. I value it. I treasure it. I value my community. But now that I know better, I'm trying to do better and trying to figure out what is these consequences. And so I was thinking of this idea of, well, let's choose a consequence. Like maybe set time out period right and she'll go sit somewhere and no matter what she does we'll work on we'll go through this process of unpacking why she did it you know get to know her feelings around it and then you sit down there and then you sit down there it's this training the problem is many times my ego doesn't want to be patient for the training that's necessary to get her to understand and correct behavior and actions and understand how when she makes these good positive decisions they are healthy and helping to her and not harmful to her she's learning things like patience. she's learning things like delayed gratification which are these life skills human skills that are absolutely necessary for her to be successful in this world for her to navigate and, and grow into a whole and full person to be able to you know set goals and achieve them and, and, and develop a sense of stick and cultivate a sense of perseverance and purpose. And so it's just been a lot to, to think about. And this is what's been happening over the past few months. And, you know, there's times my wife and I are like, I, we'll say it. I mean, you guys say, I can't stand that girl. Right. And we say it in a loving way, but it's like, when is this behavior going to be fixed? And so then, you know, what has helped is doing a little bit more research. My wife and I coming up with a plan for consequences, but then also talking to other parents. You know, I was talking to a friend and she shared a story with me about her child and they took corrective action. And then literally they turned around and the daughter did it right again. And so, and then I was talking to, you know, another friend who's a former vice principal of an of a elementary school and said, yeah, that's common. She's super intelligent. She's navigating you. She's pushing these boundaries. But kids pushing the boundaries ain't fun. It's not fun when you got 
new co-workers in your building, you, you know? And so I just think about, so one of the things that my wife and I had to decide was we had to change our schedule, right? We had to adapt. And my wife has done a lot more of adapting her schedule to making sure that we're able to have our daughter's schedule set, right? And checking in. So we know that she's supposed to be on the computer uh, for class from nine, then about 9.25 after their morning meeting, they have a break. So we got to be aware that she's on a short five minute break, bathroom break. Then they go back. Then they're on another break from 10.10 to 10.40. Then 30 minutes, like a recess. Then they have lunch. And then their day is over after lunch. What They get an hour for lunch. And then, you know, their day, they come back at 1. Their day's over about 1.30, 1.45. We have to now be present for those times and have scheduled plans. And so we have to take over and create this structure. Because if not, her mind is going to wander to getting to what she wants and so what we're realizing like a lot of this is her her reaction is well one she wants cookies who doesn't want cookies you know who <laughs> who, who doesn't want cookies in the morning and to be able to eat as much as you want or gummy worms or whatever who doesn't want three bowls of cereal heck i think i almost ate three bowls of cereal last night for dinner but it's this learning this delayed gratification right and so but we're working on creating this schedule and the schedule what, what what I'm now realizing is that with school in-person school provides so much structure there are adults in the building monitoring children as they move there are they are creating a healthy learning environment down to the classroom teacher and, the, and it's a coordinated effort the classroom teacher has a unit plan has a master plan for the full year has a daily lesson plan has a starter a middle an end has ways of just engaging and especially for the young folks to keep them moving i think they say the attention span for for someone who's in k5 or maybe like a k2 is maybe four or five minutes you know, maybe seven at, at tops and they're moving on from activity to activity to keep that mind learning, to keep that mind in training. And so if we don't, if I don't, my wife and I don't keep that mind in, tra in constant training and constant direction and constantly involved. Now, there's not to say that, like, I'm going to overschedule her in that way, but it's more of like knowing that there is something else to be done. And sometimes being done is taking a nap. Sometimes being, you know, something else to be done is to sit and read a book for 20 minutes or 15 minutes, or to sit on your bed just quietly in quiet meditation or thinking time, you know? So it's not always like, go, 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 go. But school provides that. And so I just wonder, you know, how are you all doing? How are you all experiencing this time with your kids? I, I read online that, you know, one one parent, because we, we talk about, I read on one on, online that like one, one of the teachers that I kind of follow on Facebook or whatever said that, you know, she's teaching first or kindergarten, first, fourth, sixth, seventh, and 10th grade, right? And she's a teacher because those are her kids because her kids are at home. And we talk about this challenge it is to, to get them learning. I just wonder about how others are doing, how, like what behaviors and actions are manifesting. I want to be clear that when I talk to my daughter and I say that I just, I'm very clear to separate her actions and her behavior from her, right? To where I say, 
I do not appreciate your actions or your behavior, right? Because I don't want it to feel like it's, it's not her, it's the behavior that I don't like. It's not, I don't the dislike her as a person. I dislike what she's doing because of X, Y, Z. And we talk about how some of her decisions are counter to the family culture that we've created. And we talk about those very openly. And so I just wonder just how that's affecting you all other people's households even if you're not a teacher if you're just a you know if if you have kids and you're working it's just so hard and during this time with kids you know some kids you know being completely virtual you know even those who seem like they're navigating this well we got to check in on them we got to check in on them because there's this this structure that going to school created and we talk about, you know, safety and how some of the, you know, home, you know, uh, school definitely is, is for many folks is not perfect, especially if you're black, brown and or poor, you're, you're more likely to go to schools that um, are struggling from structural and institutional racism that has severely crippled communities and community resources and access that then has manifested themselves and come to life in our buildings with our interactions with one another, parents, students, teachers, who actually decides to want to go and work in certain communities for schooling. And so I just, you know, I wonder what effect that this is, gonna, this is having, right? And I know that there are so many positive interactions that are happening with teachers who are, who are logging in and having these virtual experience with kids, but it's still not everything. It's still missing. It was still lagging when we had in-person education and now what's happening now. And so, you know, this is just, just my reflection. Just, you know, that's why I call Ayodele Speaks is these are the things that, that I'm, I'm working on as a parent, as a parent who's an educator. It was supposed to know how to do this, right? You know, in theory, I put it in quotation, supposed to know how to do this, right? I'm still struggling to figure this out. And it's challenging even when you know they're supposed to do it, when you know that, and it attacks our ego. And so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a daily walk and journey as a parent to, to think about, to, to weigh what I think parenting should, should, what I've been taught it is, what I think it, excuse me, what it should be, and then what it is and in this moment. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot to be thinking about because it's, as a parent, I think about it every, every day. Am I doing this right? Am I making the right decisions? What is causing me to, what is driving my decision-making? Is it fear sometimes? Is it an insult to ego sometimes? Is it my own satisfaction sometimes? But it's like as a, as a parent, it's, I'm constantly operating in a space where I'm working on myself. You know, it's, I got all these trucks and buses. It's you know it's it's school pickup time uh, as I walk through my neighborhood. People walking dogs and all the other type of stuff. And so 
you know, there's this, it's this constant reflection, I'm a, an opportunity to reflect on who I am as a person. I didn't realize that parenting would be that way, right? And, and I now understand why, like, and I've heard this as a teacher, right? That our, our parents are sending our ki- are the, sending the best they got. They're sending the best that they can do, you know, in their children to our classrooms. And anytime we have correspondence with them and give them, you know, information, anytime our children are a reflection of our parenting. And it's hard or challenging. Like, so, so then our parenting, when we send our kids to school, it's completely open. It's completely exposed. We're vulnerable. And so when we get feedback, from our teachers, from the educators, the folks that are that are that are creating the nurturing learning environments for our children, we almost take it as an we could take it on as an attack of ourselves. Because if anybody's anything like me, I really I'm thinking of how just my interaction with my own daughter, just me one-on-one with her, or within our household, is a reflection of me. What is it saying about me? You know? Now my child goes into a school and does something. What does that say about me? What does that say about our household, right? What image do I want to portray out there? You know, there's, there's this battle of like how we want to be perceived. And this is why like I take to, you know, this platform to just share. I ain't got all this shit figured out, but I'm in the process of trying to work on it and not just standing in the space of like, it's going to be my way or the highway which, you know, works for some people. That's where they're at in their lives. But for me, again, that, that phrase, when you know better, you do better. I'm trying to do better. And so it's just, it's just so interesting, you know, just to sit here and reflect and, and to, to try and negotiate what I think parenting is and then what I want that experience to be like for me now. And balancing that against all the research that I've read, you know, all the experiences that I've had over my 20 years working with parents, so, you know, it's just interesting. So we're, we're navigating. The Harrisons are navigating learning at home. We're navigating consequence. We're navigating growing our children. We're navigating being with our children 24 hours a day. Which, if we think about it, the only time I, for most people that they're able to be with their children 24 hours a day is when the children are infants from birth to you know, however long they are to get separate. That's the only time. And those are usually the times when our children can't run. <laughs> you know, they can't say anything. We get complete control in those moments. You know, the baby needs to be changed. The baby needs to be fed. The baby cries. But ultimately, when I got to go do something, I can pack up the baby and go. If I want to watch TV, I can watch whatever I want, what time I want, because the baby doesn't know what I'm watching. I can eat what I want, I can dress the way I want, I can smell the way I want. I don't have to, I'm in complete control. But now we're in a space where we're with our children 24 seven. That just, that's unprecedented, it's unprecedented. I'm gonna use that word, unprecedented, this COVID-19 and what it's causing us. And so, you know, I just wanna know like, hey, excuse me, want you all to know that, you know, I'm here just trying to figure it out, uh, doing the best that I can, use the knowledge that I can, staying prayerful, you know, and knowing that I'm not in, in 100% control here, 
but I am in control on how I respond to the behavior of my children. I'm working on it. I'm working on it quite a bit. So thank you for taking a, a listen to another episode of Ayodele Speaks. I'm Ayodele Harrison. Um, if you haven't yet, man, hit the subscribe button, hit the favorite button. Please comment where you see this. Um, share this. I want to know your thoughts about how it's going for you with navigating children in your home and consequences and have behavior has changed. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Iodeli underscore H-A-R 78. Um, and just connect me on YouTube and other places that I'm there. Find me. Let's look out. Let's connect. I want to know about how your experiences are as an educator, as a parent, as a black male. Holler at me. All right. Until our next episode. Take care.